visitors with us today, some of our annual visitors. Uh, but if you are a visitor, you need to know that today we are concluding a rather long study in Genesis. By God's grace, we will finish out Genesis today. We began back in February in Genesis chapter 37, reading the account of Joseph and his family, Jacob and his 11 brothers. And today we are finishing that, looking at the end of chapter 49 and to the end of chapter 50, beginning chapter 49, verse 29, and reading to the end of the book, chapter 50, verse 26. Now, you need to know as well that we are not going to study in depth the vast majority of this. Our focus today is going to be on verses 15 through 21. And so, just to give you a little bit of background as to what we are going to see, the book of Genesis ends on a, men, a, a note of forward momentum. We see it with the death of Jacob. We see it also with the death of Joseph. Uh, and their stories, really, that their deaths are parallel. In that, before they die, they both gather their family to them. Uh, they give instructions uh, that their bodies should be taken back to the land of promise, back to Canaan, and that they should be buried there. And then both of their bodies are prepared for that long journey. Now, after Jacob dies, we see his sons take his body back to Canaan and, and lay him in this tomb uh, that belongs to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their family forever as an inheritance. Now, but we don't see that with Joseph. And so the stage is set. We're looking forward to God uh, to do that same thing. And that's what you find in, in the book of Exodus. But we won't be looking uh, much at that forward momentum. We'll see it a little bit at the end. Uh, but we are going to be looking at this portion in the middle, verses 15 through 21. But we are going to be reading the entire passage beginning uh, in chapter 49, verse 29. You can find that if you haven't already on page 43 in our ESVs. Today looking at Genesis 49. Before we go to God's word, please join me again as we come to him in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would give us wisdom by your word today. You've given us your word, which is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and we pray that you would use it to cut us to the heart, to lay us bare before you, to show us the comfort of your goodwill, your providence, working for your people. We pray that you would bind up any hearts that are broken today by your word and by the grace of your Savior. We pray that you would challenge us to look to him for all of our sufficiency. We pray that you would give us good hope and what you will do for us, and the way that you will come and visit us again, even as that word was spoken through Joseph to his brothers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it beginning in Genesis chapter 49, verse 29. And he, that is Jacob, then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is, in, that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him, and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. 
Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atab, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought from the field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us, will pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for me, as for you, rather, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them. He spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived a hundred ten years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you, will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being a hundred ten years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. When I was a child, I was fascinated by a cheap little toy that I had. You've probably seen them. It was a figurine of an eagle, and its wings were spread out and forward, 
and it would balance perfectly on a little pedestal by just the tip of its beak. And you could spin it, and it would stay there. You could put it on the tip of a pencil, you could put it uh, on your finger, and you could, you could fly it around the room. And as long as you kept support under that tiny little beak, the thing would stay where it was. And I loved that thing. It was, it was almost this mystifying sort of, how does that happen? How does that work? Well, I found out this week that you can still buy those. Uh, and one company calls them Magical Balancing Birds. Packaging declares that they easily defy gravity. That's actually not true at all. <laughs> In fact, that's exactly the opposite of what they do. The reason that they work is not that they defy gravity, but they obey it. And that all the weight of that little figurine is equally spread around that beak tip, right in the middle, that, that even though it looks precarious, sitting there perched uh, on that little pedestal, that's actually the most stable point in the entire toy. It's the center of gravity for the entire thing. And so as long as you hold it right there, everything's okay. No matter how precarious it looks, and no matter what situation you have it in, it's stable because of that center of gravity right in the middle of the balancing bird. Well, in a similar way, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, is the theological center of gravity in the passage that we just read. In fact, it's, it's the center of gravity for the entire story of Joseph and his family. For the past three and a half months, we have watched this story going back and forth from Canaan to Egypt, back again. We've, we've seen Joseph go through uh, hatred and suffering and forgiveness and, and blessing and promise and prophecy. And from any individual point, if you were to look at it just isolated from the rest, you might think this thing is about to topple at any moment. This dysfunctional family is destined for the trash heap of history, and no one would think ill of you if that's the opinion you had of the story of Joseph and his family. It all would have been true, it all would have toppled over if it had not been for that center point right in the middle, that center of gravity for the whole mess of Joseph and his brothers. Verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It's the center of the story. It's the doctrine of providence. It's the truth that, that Joseph has already revealed to his brothers back in chapter 45 when he revealed himself to them. He said, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God sent me here. It's the center point. It's the doctrine of God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions bring about his own good purposes in the world. It's the truth that the unchanging God of providence works unchanging good for his people. That's the center of this story. Despite how precarious our situation may appear in the world, it ought to be the center of our lives as well. So at the center of this story is providence. And at the center of providence, at least for Joseph, is comfort. Notice that that's how Joseph wields this doctrine. It doesn't look like that for everyone. Some people see uh, the doctrine of providence as a sort of curiosity. It's this question that you may try to fool yourself into thinking that you can debate in, in a sort of uh, sterile way, a, a non-connected way in some uh, college philosophy class somewhere. We'll, we'll think about how much is God in control of and how much responsibility does man have. And you think you can do that. It's a curiosity, but you're not involved. For others, 
this doctrine of providence is, is a stumbling block, honestly. Something that their faith struggles to climb over because they have a hard time wrapping their minds around how could God actually be involved, completely involved, totally involved in everything in the world, especially when I look back at my life where I see circumstances of those that I love that seem so terribly, unspeakably difficult. And it's a stumbling block. But for Joseph, it's comforting. Notice what he says. You meant this for evil, and God meant good. In the next verse, verse 21 says, Thus he comforted them. He reassured them with God's power and his goodness, all rolled together in sovereign love, that he is working unchanging good for his people. That's what Joseph does with this. And so I, I don't want to dismiss today the struggle that many have uh, with providence. I, I don't want to ignore that, that stumbling block that lays before us. And, and what are we to think of uh, of a God who says he is sovereign and yet uh, we endure suffering and evil and pain and heartache. I don't want to ignore that, but I do want us to be a bit like Joseph today. Joseph is like that older, more mature Christian that you know. The kind of believer that if you see their Bible open, you notice that, that their Bible is wrinkled and dog-eared right at Romans chapter 8. And that page in their Bible is, is probably stained with some of the tears that they've cried as they've prayed through this passage, and it's underlined, and it's highlighted. We know. It's not conjecture. We know that all things work together for good. For those who love God, for those who are the called according to His purpose. Joseph is, is like a Christian who stands on the doctrine of providence says, here is the comfort that my soul longs for. So I want us to be a little bit like Joseph today. We've seen providence already. It's been a major theme in our series uh, through Genesis. But one more time before we leave this book, I want to look at God's providence and hope that we can catch some of the comfort in these words. And I want to do so by looking at providence in three tenses. Past, present, and future. What does God's providence mean for our past? How does it affect us now in the present? And what does it mean for the way that we approach the future? So first, what does God's providence have to do with our past? Well, God's providence puts our past in perspective. That's how we could put it. God's providence puts our past in perspective. Now, there's a problem in our text. It shows up in verse 15. The brothers are gathered together and they say, It may be... May be that Joseph will hate us and will pay us back for all the evil that we have done to him. That's the problem. It may be. Or maybe you have a translation that says, what if? That's another good way to put it. This is the question that the brothers are asking. What if? What if Joseph is holding a grudge and he hasn't let on yet? And we're only going to see it once dad is gone. What if Joseph is just waiting for the right time to strike? What if? Deep down, somewhere we haven't seen it, Joseph hates us at least as much as we all hated him when we were still boys back in Canaan. What if? That's the brother's problem. And here they are. The stage is set for flourishing. The family's been in Egypt for a while. The family is united in Egypt. That famine that brought them all down there, it's just a memory. It's faded into the past. There's probably grain in abundance, and they have what they need there. Now is the time to enjoy all the blessings of brotherhood and, and reconciliation, to taste the fruits of reconciliation in their family, but they can't. They dare not reach out and take hold of their fruits. They cannot relax 
into their relationship with their brother because they are obsessed with the wrongs of the past. And because they are obsessed, they're consumed with these wrongs, they assume that there can be no getting over them. Not for them, certainly not for Joseph. Their future is haunted by the question of their past, and they come together asking, what if? I bet you know some people who play that what if game. Maybe you are the people who play that what if game. And maybe the what if game for you, or for those people that you know, is like it was for Joseph's brothers. That you are consumed by the question of the memory of the wrongs that you have committed. The things that you've done, the sins you've committed that, that legitimately have been forgiven by everyone else but you. You're consumed with those boneheaded decisions you made once upon a time, long ago, that have changed the course of your life. And now your life is something that you never desired and, and never thought it would be. And you're consumed with what has happened. And, and what if? Because you can't get over them. And you're just waiting for the trap to close shut up. Or maybe, and I think this is much more prevalent, maybe the what if is, is like what they assumed of their brother, that you are consumed with the wrongs that have been committed against you. It might have been a year ago, it might have been 30 years ago, but it was a legitimate wrong. It was an abuse, it was a mistreatment. It was someone you were supposed to trust, and they took advantage of that trust, and they left you broken. Those things happen. And through those experiences, sometimes they can leave a taproot that grows straight down into the soil of our lives and will not let go. And it feels like you've gotten a hold of it several times, but all you're doing is plucking the leaves off of the surface. And as soon as the sun comes back up, as soon as it rains again, that weed is just going to sprout and you can never get rid of it because it's always there. And you spend your day saying, what if? And the brother's problem was that they assumed that Joseph was in that category. He'd never really gotten over the sins they had committed against him. You know, there was a family precedent for that uh, in Jacob's line. You remember uh, old Uncle Esau. Old Uncle Esau, who had been uh, wronged by his brother Jacob, and it tells us in Genesis chapter 27, Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Rachel heard of it, and she called Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself. Interesting that it's the same word there. Your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. There's precedent. And what if that scene is being played out all over again? Joseph has just been biding his time, that all along he's had this plot to get near to his brothers and to their children and to erase their memory, and we're going to start over with Joseph. It's going to be the Joseph era, and maybe that is how Joseph is comforting himself, but that's not how Joseph is comforting himself. He doesn't find his comfort from a plot, but he takes it from God's providence. Can you imagine the television interview with Joseph? Well, Joseph, uh, now that your, your father is gone, what do you think about your past? Or maybe if it's a television interview, it would be something that we would understand in the 21st century. Joseph, how do you feel? How do you feel about what your brothers did to you? What would Joseph say? Say something like, I feel fine. No, no, really. I feel okay. 
I'm, I'm at a place where I've found some rest. Almost, you know, it's almost even thankfulness for all of the situations that the Lord has brought me through. I found rest not because what they did was unintentional, though they, they meant it. They meant evil to me, and, and they were out to get me. And I understand that. That's not why uh, I can rest with this. And it's not because uh, it was easy. It's not because I enjoyed being wronged and harmed and hated and ruined. You know, it's really not even because everything worked out for me in the end, although it really did. I've come to a place of rest and thankfulness because I know that even in the evil designs of my brothers, God was working. They meant evil, but God meant good. And I know that He is sovereign over their sin, and I know that He is sovereign over my suffering, and He, by providence, has directed my every step, and He is working all things together for good. Good for me, good for His people, good for His name, and, and good for His promise, and good for His glory. That's the perspective I've got in my past. That's what Joseph would say. It would remind us that the unchanging God of providence is working unchanging good for his people. And he can rest because he's got this perspective. Dear friends, is this the perspective that you have on your past? Can you look at those decisions and those sins that you have made or committed? Can you look at those wrongs that have been perpetrated against you? And say, together with Joseph, together with countless believers throughout the ages, God is working all things. Sin and suffering, evil, hurt and heartache. God is working all things together for good. For his elect and for those who are beloved in Christ. That's where perspective is found. That's where comfort is to be found. God is working good in the providence of God. He puts our past in perspective. But then there's a, a very closely connected thought, and it has to do with our presence, our present, rather. Uh, and it is that the Lord gives us peace in our present. He puts our past in perspective. I'm going to run out of P words here pretty soon. Uh, he puts our past in perspective, and he gives us peace in our present. And that's because it's only when you've gotten the perspective of God's providence over your past that it changes how you're able to live now in the presence. Unlike his brothers, Joseph does not live his life out of the fear and out of the anxiety that comes from obsessing over what has happened and what might happen. God's sovereign direction of his life has freed him to live faithfully where he is called and where the Lord has placed him. God's providence has changed him and it affects what Joseph does on a daily basis. Take a look at some of the ways that, that providence has changed Joseph. For one, uh, it allows Joseph to be humble. In verse 18, the brothers come and they fulfill Joseph's original dream all over again. Here at the end, they come and they bow down before him. And they grovel at his feet and they ask for mercy. And what's Joseph's response? It's humility. Am I in the place of God? You know, actually, Joseph, kind of, uh, yeah, actually, at least as so far as it concerns earthly justice, 
you are sort of in the place of God. You're, you've got the sword you could wield. In the ancient Near Eastern world, there was exactly one human being alive who had more earthly power than Joseph. And if he wanted to punish his brothers for their transgression, nobody was going to stop him. But his understanding of providence wouldn't allow him to do it that way. He knew that there is one Lord. He knew that there is one sovereign king over all the earth, and that reality humbled him. And the second most powerful person in the world was submissive to the will of God. Even though by all accounts he had every right to demand full payment. See, providence gave Joseph humility. And out of humility he refused to exact vengeance on his evil brothers. We need to tread lightly here. And carefully. Because the passage is not telling us that we should not be concerned with righteousness and with justice. It is not telling us that if the Lord so wills, it's a better thing to accept oppression rather than injustice. It's not telling us that when wicked men act wickedly, we should just turn our heads and say, well, you know how men will be. It's not telling us that, but it is telling us that where the Lord calls us to forgive the wrongs of others, He also gives us the truth that helps us to make sense of that forgiveness. And the truth comes from recognizing that there is one judge over all the earth who will always do right, who will call wickedness to account. It comes when we humble ourselves to rest in God's vengeance rather than in our own. It comes as providence makes us humble. That's what it did for Joseph. It also made Joseph obedient. Now in this passage, Joseph is a wonderful example of what it looks like to walk two miles with someone who asks you to walk one mile. To give your tunic to the person who asks for your cloak. His brothers come to him with, with a request. They say, please forgive us. In fact, let us be your servants. Let us repay our debt to you. Let us make these things right. And Joseph does them one better. He says, actually, I'm going to provide for you. You realize what he's saying there. Forgiveness has already been granted. Your debt has already been canceled. And I am willing not only to shoulder the burden of your wickedness to me, but I'm willing to shoulder the burden of you and your family so long as the Lord will give me strength to do that. I want to serve you. I want to be obedient. I want to be generous. And that's what it is. It's obedience. Because back in chapter 45, this is what Joseph told his brothers. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sent me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. That's his role in Egypt. To preserve life. God sent me to preserve a remnant. To keep alive for you many survivors. So Joseph is obedient. Even though it will continue to cost him. Even though the famine is over and the immediate danger has passed. He will continue so long as the Lord gives him strength to fulfill his role and his calling with a passion. And God's providence has made him obedient. Isn't it beautiful when you see someone who does that and who lives that way? Think of a woman who gives birth to a child who has unexpected disabilities. It's not what she and her husband prayed for. It's not what they expected, not what they wanted, but this is what the Lord has called them to and given them to. So they provide for that little. And it means long nights. 
It means trips to the hospital back and forth. And it means all sorts of things for the rest of their lives. And that child will probably never be independent until their dying day. That mother and that father will have to serve that little one. And yet they do it with dignity. They do it with compassion. They do it with a, a sense of divine calling because this is what the Lord has given to them. Isn't it beautiful when you see people who have been so moved by the comfort of God's providence that they become obedient to God's calling in their lives? We prayed today for the hopes, and I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet read uh, their prayer request, to do that later. They're asking for God's wisdom. Cherry has a sister and a brother, both with developmental disabilities. Diane lives with them and, and stays with them when they're in Africa, but Mark is, is not able to do that, and he's been back in Texas. And now they're wondering, Lord, is this the time when they have to leave the ministry to care for her brother? And something inside of us says, oh, don't do that. There's, there's still so much to accomplish uh, in Uganda. Don't leave the mission field. Somebody else, pay somebody else to do those things. Why would you, would you turn away? There's so much good that can be done. But they're saying, no, this is what God and his providence has laid upon us. And isn't it a beautiful thing? People are made obedient by God's providence and humble by God's providence. Isn't it a beautiful thing when, when providence makes God's people willing to minister to others? That's what Joseph does with his providence in the present. He comforts his brothers with this doctrine. Shouldn't be, they be the ones comforting him? Joseph, we're really sorry. We didn't mean it. We, we, we wish we could take it back. Oh, I wish a thousand times every day that we could undo it. But yet, it's Joseph who's giving comfort to them. Twice he tells them, do not fear. Do not fear. I'm not going to harm you. I'm going to provide for you. You see, he takes what the Lord has given him, the comfort of God's providence, and he turns it around to minister to others. It is this great 2 Corinthians moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So providence does. When it gets a hold of us, it, it puts our past in perspective, and it gives us peace in the present. It grows us in humility and in obedience. It fills us with comfort that we can minister to others out of the abundance that the Lord gives to us. And then there is another thing, and it deals with the future. That God's providence gives us faith for the future. I've mentioned already that at the end of the book of Genesis, there is momentum that is pushing forward out of the end of the book. You can't wait to turn into Exodus and see what is there. It's almost at the end of, uh, of this book as though that there is a target painted in Canaan and the archer is standing in Egypt. And the arrow is put to the string and the bow is pulled tight and all that remains is to let fly and shoot for home. And there is this great momentum because in the context of his death, Joseph tells his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely visit you. The language is emphatic there. God will surely visit you and bring you up out of this land. And he does. 
In fact, that same language, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3, that same language shows up when God speaks and reveals himself to Moses. Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord uh, appears to Moses and he sends him back to the sons of Israel with a message. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you. Anybody else have a different translation? I have visited you. That's the word. I have surely visited you. And I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the land of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. He does visit them. He keeps his promise. And the rest of the book of Exodus is that story of visitation and of deliverance. And God keeps his promise and he's faithful. And we only have to turn a page to see it. And that means that we can forget the 400 years that eclipse between Genesis chapter 50 and Exodus chapter 3. We can forget the four centuries of oppression and slavery and sin and injustice and heartache and hardship that God's people endured as they waited for God to fulfill His promise. We can forget the long nights spent in prayer. How long, O Lord? Will you forget us forever? Will we, will we just be here just waiting for this fulfillment and yet never see it? We can forget how often in that time God's people must have remembered that promise from Joseph and said, I wonder if it's even true. Wait a long time. I don't see anything coming of it, and in fact, things only seem to be getting worse. And how can I know that God will visit us as He said? Well, one of the places God's people could get confidence, one of the areas that they could turn to build up their faith in what the Lord was going to do is to look back into His providence in the past. Is God able to keep his word? Is he able to do what he has said? They could look back to consider the providence that led them to Egypt in the first place. God's whole plan to send a teenager to Egypt to teach him obedience by what he suffered. To raise him to a place of power and prominence and administration in the land so that God's people would be saved from this famine. So that the hungry would have bread and the thirsty would have water. They need only to look back and to consider God's providence, the way that it provided a way for them. They can remember the God who works His unchanging good for His people. And they can catch a glimpse of His faithfulness in the providential sufferings of Joseph. The fact that at the end of his life he can say, yeah, I've been through some pretty terrible things, but I know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Dear friends, this is the same way that our faith is strengthened today. 2,000 years we've been living. Two millennia. How long, O oh Lord? Are you going to forget us forever? When will you visit us as you have said? Will we always live here where we are sinning and sinned against? Will we always suffer while we wait for your coming? You've told us, behold, I'm coming quickly. Stay awake. Watch for me. I will not leave you as orphan. Isn't, isn't this what you've told us, O Lord? And yet, how will we know that this will be true? Can't we look back to God's providence over the sufferings of his servant? 
Can't we see the way that he was yet providential and, and sovereign over all of the sufferings of the worst evil that ever occurred in humanity? There is a parallel statement to, to Joseph's statement in Acts chapter 4. It's made uh, by the disciples in the context of prayer. This is, this is what they prayed. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Do you hear that? Why did Jesus suffer? Why was Jesus put to death? Why was he killed? Why was it that the most unspeakable evil that has ever taken place on earth, why was it committed? The killing of the sinless and spotless Lamb of God. Because the sovereign Lord had predestined that it should happen. And Herod was there. Pilate was there, and the Gentiles, and the Jews, and they meant evil. They meant to snuff out the light of life. They meant to erase the Creator. They meant to cast aside He who upholds and sustains all things by the word of His power. They meant evil, but God meant that for good. He meant it for salvation. He meant it for deliverance. For the saving of many people from the ravages of sin by the atoning death of of Christ the Savior. How can we know that He will keep His word and come back and visit us as He has said? But we can know as we look to the cross and understand that even there, the unchanging God of providence was working unchanging good for His people. And because of that, the suffering of Christ was not wasted. And we also know that while we wait, our suffering is not wasted. God is working all things for good for those who love Him, those who are called according to His purposes. So here we find the three tenses of God's providence. And providence puts our past in perspective. It gives us peace in the present. It gives us faith for the future. And I hope that you know the God of sovereign love. I hope that you find comfort in His providence for you through Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you for this word today. Thank you for the truth behind it, that you are always working good for your people. And if we're honest, it doesn't always seem that way from our end. We face calamity and hardship and trouble, affliction and famine and persecution and sword, and all manner of affliction and evil. And, oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see what our eyes of flesh cannot yet apprehend. Indeed, you are working all things together for good, for us and for your glory. We pray that many here would be comforted by these words. Make us humble and obedient. Make us ministers of this grace one to another. As we all wait and long for your visitation again, we pray in Jesus' name.